Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the Genesis Blog Podcast. Today we have for you another protocol analysis and this time we're covering GMX, which I'm sure some of you all at least have heard of. Um, so with that, let's let's begin. Yash, over to you. Right. So GMX is, it's basically a, a it's a decentralized exchange where users can trade, you know, spot markets and perpetual swaps uh, for supported assets on the GMX network. So GMX, we'll get into the assets and stuff later, but GMX is built on Arbitrum, which is the layer two Ethereum scaling solution, as well as on uh, Avalanche, uh, which is an alt L1. Uh, as you can see, they're targeting you know, high throughput uh, blockchains because you require that kind of throughput for all the transactions that take place on DEXs and you know something like Ethereum probably wouldn't support such a high volume. So anyway, so uh, GMX allows, you know, as I said, allows users to trade different assets that are supported in the different pools. And it allows users to either, you know, just go long or short, like a normal spot market, or they can buy perpetual swaps, which is basically a future which you can, you know, trade indefinitely into time. And they allow users to take up to 30x leverage. So that means they can <clears throat> borrow up to 30 times their collateral value. Uh, uh, so yeah, that's how it works. Uh, so the key selling point of uh, GMX is that unlike traditional DEXs that currently use an AMM model, where it's a, you know, it's a constant product function where the product of your two assets has to equal a constant and the price keeps fluctuating depending on that, which leads to impermanent loss and liquidity providers need to constantly arbitrage to get the price back to its current market price. But GMX, they actually use an Oracle pricing model. So they use Chainlink to basically get price feeds from centralized exchanges like Binance and FTX to get the true price of an asset without the need for LPs to you know, arbitrage to find the true price or discover the true price of the asset. And that leads to way lower slippage during trades, um, which is very important if you're conducting trades with a high, you know, high volume trades, it's way easier to conduct it on GMX than it would be, for example, on Uniswap. Um, so yeah, any questions? Do we go further into how exactly it works? Yeah, I think that, um, I mean, overall, you've explained it pretty well. Just uh, for the viewers, what is a perpetual swap? Okay. Um, and, you know, because this is a derivatives exchange, essentially, right? So a perpetual swap is a crypto native product that's not really seen in traditional options markets. So do you want to explain what that is quickly? Right. So future basically gives you the right to buy or sell an asset at any particular time in the future. So if it's a three month future, you have the right to buy or sell the asset at a particular price decided today, three months into the future. What a perpetual swap does is it extends that timeline indefinitely. So you can theoretically go long or short on an asset with leverage for as long as you want to, and you can settle on whatever date you feel like, as long as you, you know, keep your collateral value above the liquidation price um, that is decided based on how much leverage you take basically. So yeah, yeah. that's what a perpetual swap is. Yeah, so it's actually like very useful um, as a financial instrument in general. And, and um, we've actually written about this, um, or I wrote about it on my, on my blog before uh, Genesis blog. Um, it's on the Genesis blog Substack. but there's a very 
obvious real world application of perpetual swaps, swaps as well. Um, and Paradigm wrote an article called Everlasting Options that were based on the concept of perpetual swaps. And it essentially um, using perpetual swaps instead of rolling options contracts in uh, the traditional financial world would actually solve for a lot of inefficiencies that plague rolling options contracts right now, such as um, you know human error and uh, just general strike price inefficiency. So you know just in general, perpetual swaps are by themselves a very real world um, applicable utility of DeFi. Um, and you know we've been talking about oh how can all these things be applied in the in the real world and what is the actual real world utility of this. Well, this is what it actually is. A perpetual swap applied to rolling options makes that market significantly more efficient. Yep, definitely. I mean, why should people be restricted to one month, three month, one year futures? Like, I mean, no one can decide exactly that time frame when they start trading, right? It you should have some kind of leeway as to when you want to exit your trade. And I think perpetual swaps does that because you can literally end your trade whenever you want to. So, I mean, if some, if your coin runs up, suddenly runs up 50% in a day, you're not stuck having to wait, wait it out till your options or your future expires to, to cash out. You can cash out right then and there, which is amazing. Exactly. Anyway, so now I guess we can go on to how exactly GMX works. So basically, uh, GM, uh, the way it works is there are two tokens in GMX. One is called GMX, obviously, and the other one is called GLP, with the LP probably standing for liquidity provider. So what users need to do is that there is a pool of liquidity called the GLP pool with a bunch of different supported assets. So uh, for, for example, on the Arbitrum chain and the AVAX chain, there are two separate liquidity pools and users can go and deposit liquidity into that pool and they will be uh, when they deposit liquidity, they will get, uh, they will mint GLP tokens essentially, which is a liquidity provider token, which represents a share of that pool. So for example, if I go and de uh, deposit Ethereum into the GLP pool, my Ethereum goes in the pool and I get GLP tokens in a proportionate uh, rate. That is, that is basically my equity, I guess, over the pool. And then traders can go and buy and sell, you know, spot of, or perps, whatever they feel like from the pool. And the pool essentially serves as a counterparty to all these traders. So for example, if I'm a trader and I go and I buy Ethereum uh, from the GLP pool, the GLP pool becomes my counterparty. Uh, and essentially if I make money on my trade, the GLP pool loses money. And if I lose money on my trade, the GLP pool makes money. So Providing liquidity to the GLP pool is essentially a bet on your part that traders will lose money long-term and the GLP pool will make money. So you're essentially betting on the house while the traders are the gamblers who come to your casino. And uh, the GLP pool then earns fees in the form of market making fees, you know, trading fees, as well as borrowing fees because they provide leverage. So your trader has to provide a fee because they are taking that leverage. And the fees are then distributed in a 70 to 30 proportion. So 70% goes to GLP holders and uh, who are essentially liquidity providers. And the other 30% goes to GMX holders who are staking their GMX. So essentially, 
it sounds complicated, but what they're basically doing is splitting off the fees between liquidity providers and GMX holders. And this kind of works in most DEXs where fees are split up between liquidity providers and the holders of the token. And the only notable exception to this is Uniswap, who where only liquidity providers own fees, while the Uniswap holders essentially are holding a governance token and have the option to turn on a fee switch in the future. So yeah, that's how the entire system works. And it makes a lot of sense to split it up like this because you can then decide whether you want to take on that risk of being a counterparty to traders or you exclusively want to just own trading fees and are betting on the long-term growth in the number of users on the protocol and are not taking a bet on whether traders are going to you know, gain or lose money, essentially. So yeah, before going forward into stuff like you know the trends and the launch and the use cases and stuff like that, do you guys have any more comments? Thoughts, questions. So essentially, the GMX token is um, what is the use of it? It's only the stake. Yeah, so you stake and you earn fees, and then it's also a governance token. Uh, so you you know you can govern the future of the platform. You know, if you want to adjust fees or any of those kind of proposals, you can put forward as a GMX holder. So it's a governance and utility token, and it makes sense to do it like this because. I mean, on, on the one hand, you need the project to be decentralized and it needs to be governed by the users of the platform or the people who hold GMX. And at the same time, liquidity providers also need to be compensated, but liquidity providers shouldn't have any say over the governance of the platform, right? Because they are there exclusively to provide liquidity and earn a fee for doing so. So it makes sense to split it up like that. But the GLP token is not something that's publicly traded. You can only go and buy GMX on the open market. GLP is only minted when you provide liquidity. And you can't, that so that, does that mean that you can't transfer it? Like I can't list it on any secondary marketplace no. and exchange. Oh, okay. So, you it's, can't. so it's essentially like a non-transferable NFT that represents my um, proportion of the GLP pool. Yeah, you can say so. It's and not, as long as you really, hold, yeah. yeah. As long it's as you hold, like, exactly like you. That. Yeah. Yeah, so you've, you've deposited liquidity and you hold the GLP token because as long as soon as you deposit liquidity, it mints GLP automatically into your wallet. And you earn fees as long as you hold GLP. And then if you want to redeem your GLP and get back the base assets that are part of the pool, you just burn your GLP and you get back your asset and you stop earning fees. So it's okay. very simple that way. And the pool that um, you deposit into, it consists of many different types of assets so it's no so it's and... so currently so the arbitrum and avalanche they have different glp pools okay? okay so the arbitrum pool and the avalanche pool are separate and you have to provide liquidity to them separately so the arbitrum glp pool supports ethereum bitcoin chainlink uniswap and five different stable coins so there's usdc usdt dai frax and mim and the Avalanche pool supports uh, Ethereum, AVAX, Bitcoin, and three stable coins. So yeah, they're different constituents, but I think uh, through governance proposals, et cetera, they can keep adding assets to the to these pools. And, and, and when I want to deposit my assets into a pool, it's it's essentially like an omnibus pool, right? So it's not segregated. Yeah. Like the assets are all in one pool. So exactly. Ethereum, Bitcoin, all of them, is it's all in one pool. 
Yeah, and that so, leads to more efficiencies, obviously, because you don't need to provide liquidity for you know just a trading pair. You provide whatever liquidity you want to provide into this one pool. Okay, cool. I and, think that makes sense. That was the question I was going to ask. And the and the so in this in this model, um, slippage is only a function of how deep the liquidity is. No, so there's actually zero slippage, right? Because normally the way DEXs work is they work on an EMM model. Right. So impermanent loss is like an inbuilt feature or not a feature, an inbuilt curse, I guess, where liquidity providers are constantly, you know, up or down depending on the price of the asset itself. While in this, the price of the asset is determined by oracles. Right. So there's no need for liquidity. Like liquidity providers will not experience any impermanent loss because price of the assets is not based on this constant function or constant product model. It's just based on what the market price is. Like there's no need for price discovery on the platform itself because they are getting the price from external trusted sources like Binance and FTX using an Oracle like Chainlink. Okay. And then, so there's no, there's no a situation or scenario where the total deposits of one particular asset goes less than the, the, the total amount deposited of that asset by LPs. So like there's no situation where LPs um, will not be able to redeem all of their assets. No, there isn't because they also have a, it's basically the assets get adjusted based on the demand and supply of the asset in the pool. So they always adjusted. Uh, I mean, they adjust the fees you need to pay based on the demand for the assets. So if, the demand for the asset is higher. You also have to pay higher fees to buy or sell that okay. specific asset. And that incentivizes more people to put the same asset to, to uh, reach some sort of equilibrium. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Got it. And also, did, did, has the team given any explanation of why they chose Arbitrum first and why not say something like a Solana? So that, oh, so I mean, I was going to get to the team later, but we might as well discuss it now, I guess. So the team is completely anonymous. Um, you know, no one knows who exactly they are. They obviously have their pseudonyms on Twitter, but by and large, I mean, no one has any idea who they actually are. So it's like a team of, I think, 11 people, four developers, one marketer, and, you know, a bunch of other people. And, but yeah, I mean, they've said they chose, they first, they built this product on Binance Smart Chain under another name. And then they finally shifted to Arbitrum, I guess, once, you know, Arbitrum finally showed promise and people were using it. So they moved to Arbitrum because I guess they wanted to still be in the Ethereum ecosystem, but obviously couldn't be on Ethereum. Uh, and then they moved to AVAC. So I guess their plan is to integrate with as many EVM compatible chains as possible mm -hmm. in the future. So, you know, maybe they'd go to Optimism next. They'd look at like something like Neo Protocol or yeah. Phantom or any Alt L1, probably other than Solana would be looked at. Solana and Cardano. I mean, for example, if I wanted to build something like an options market, I wouldn't really build it on Solana because sure, Solana's got high throughput, but it's also got crippling problems of where its infrastructure just goes down. So, and when you need, yeah. you know, a sub-second confirmations, um, you don't want a situation in which your probability that the chain will go down is, you know, not is actually like much higher than non-zero. So that's yeah. one thing. And another thing for Arbitrum is that to date, it's actually proved to be very performant. 
um the products that have been built on it have been really good i mean obviously gmx is a very big contributing factor towards that but actually if you look at dopex dopex is built on arbitrum as well and dopex is also another options protocol and it's a really really good options protocol actually kind of similar to gmx because it's also got a team of pseudonymous um founders as as far as i can um, remember but yeah so I, i you know it's why you would choose that and and i i'd say avax because avalanche is actually a very flexible blockchain like they have you know i i i don't know exactly about what their roadmap is is going to look like but the but they have you know um the ability to have l2s so like roll ups on top of avalanche they have the ability to have subnets which are essentially application specific blockchains so whatever you know gmx wants to do it has the flexibility to do on 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 avalanche like for example they could go in the dydx model of actually becoming an application um, specific blockchain right if they wanted to do that so uh, avalanche does give them quite a lot of flexibility to do those things um and again the ebm compatibility is really important like you wouldn't want to restrict your user base to something like only solana by building on solana first because the the majority of folks in crypto at least currently build on ethereum and build on ethereum layer 2s right like um so you know i think there are lots of very good reasons for choosing arbitrum and avalanche first and i actually think that those are two of the blockchains that make a lot of sense yeah agreed Agreed. So one thing I forgot to mention is that the fees that are paid out to you know GLP holders and GMX stakers are actually, I mean, on Arbitrum they're paid out in ETH and on Avalanche they're paid out in ABAX. So they're actually you know there's not some random token as such that is you know being paid out as fees. You're actually earning real yield in the form of ETH and ABAX, uh, for being a liquidity provider or GMX staker, which is I guess. I mean, GMX. I guess is one of the protocols that have started this entire narrative of real yield that we're seeing nowadays, which is great, right? Because now you don't have some useless governance token that you're being paid, you know, paid as in fees as an LP or as a GMX staker. You're owning real yield, and you get to take that real yield home just by being a holder, which is, you know, was not how it was done earlier during, you know, DeFi summer of twenty twenty. Yeah, I think that's um, a really good point. So, I mean, so let's talk about the trends supporting, you know, uh, GMX. So, spot and perp trades account for almost ninety-five percent of total trading volume in twenty twenty-one, uh, and both types of trading saw large increases. But uh, spot spot trades increased one hundred and thirty percent year on year, while perpetual swap trades increased. Almost five hundred percent year on year. So there's a massive demand for you know perp trades in crypto that is growing a lot quicker than spot trades, I guess, because perp trades are an easy way for people to get leverage, and they haven't. There's not been easy access to leverage just for you know normal stock trades and stuff like this before. And crypto allows you to do this in a permissionless way, which is why I understand why the demand is increasing so quickly. And uh, so, DeFi perps uh, on your decentralized exchange perp trading has not been a thing until like just a year ago. Before that, all perpetual swap trades happened on centralized exchanges for crypto products. Like Binance is still the biggest perpetual swap trading venue for you know all of crypto, but uh, Dex perpetual volume has increased in market share from around from zero percent essentially to three percent. 
in less than a year. And it's a massive market in uh, worth around $1.7 trillion. This is the crypto perp market total uh, market value currently, of which only 3% is currently conducted by DEXs. So you can imagine how rapidly that'll grow given that on DEXs you don't need to provide KYC and you're not playing, paying exorbitantly high fees like the way you pay on centralized exchanges. So there's a massive runway for growth over here and GMX is like really well placed to take advantage of this growth because it is it has one of the best UIs of any you know perp decks I've ever seen. It has zero slippage because it doesn't use an AMM model. It uses oracles to price, and it also has low fees, which are you know lower than Binance and FTX. Um, the only problem is that they they only support four assets really to trade with and stable coins. And even though they only support these four assets, they're seeing massive volume increases month on month, you know, year on year. And it's only been about a year since GMX has gone live, which is pretty crazy growth if you think about it. And the thing is, all the fees are accruing to GMX and GLP holders instead of, you know, Binance taking just all the fees and, you know, not really helping LPs or anything that much. So, yeah. Definitely something to watch out for. The growth of Dex Pops. Um, so some other just key facts that I guess are useful for people to know before we get into the tokenomics itself. So GMX, before it launched on Arbitrum, it was on Binance Smart Chain under another name. And then they migrated to Arbitrum and launched as GMX in September of 2021. And then they launched uh, on AVAX in Jan 2022. Uh, it's seen significant traction in terms of fees collected. Um, the exact number is, I think it's around 55 million in, in total fees collected by LPs as well as uh, you know, GMX takers. And this, all these fees is you know, real yield in, in ETH and AVAX. So it's not just the value of an a token that's you know being paid out as token emissions is actual 55 million dollars of actual fees being paid out to people providing liquidity which is kind of crazy um and then we can talk about the investors so the great thing about gmx is, is they actually raise uh, sorry sorry Ash. just one question on what you just yeah. the the fees that are paid out in, in the blockchain's native assets uh the like eth and, and evax that is that that's possible because of like why is how is that possible is that because the traders pay the fees in that yeah the traders are paying i mean if they're using arbitrum they're paying fees in ETH, and if they're using avax they're paying fees in avax even and this is just being directly paid out even if they're trading the uh, the other assets that are listed so non-eth and non-avax assets yeah yeah yeah, yeah. they just they are going to be paying a transaction fee in ETH. Or AVAX, depending on whether it's Arbitrum or Avalanche. So a user has to have ETH or AVAX in their wallet to perform any trades, irrespective of asset. But that goes for, I mean, anything, right? If you're performing any kind of trade on Uniswap, you're going to be paying fees in ETH only, right? Yeah, yeah. No, I am just, just wanted to understand how they, um, how they, uh, what do you call, how, how they allow this fees to be in ETH. Because Uniswap, the ETH that you pay is gas. It's not the the Uniswap transaction fee. The Uniswap transaction fee gets taken out from whatever asset you're swapping. 
Yeah. So this is a a blanket fee on all all you know trades being done. It's still paid out in ETH or AVAX. So I guess yeah, you're right. It's different from Uniswap in that aspect. Got it. Got it. Right. So yeah, let's talk about the investors. But you know, there's not much to talk about since they don't have any early investors. They didn't raise any VC money. So you know, there's no VC tokens that are vested currently that are going to flood the market in the future. It's all been bootstrapped, and even investors who wanted to, you know, uh, create big positions of GMX have had to just buy on the open market like the rest of us. And I think that is pretty unique for the crypto space, where normally projects, you know, raise money from investors at really, really small valuations, and then investors dump on retail token holders and just kind of continue that Ponzi-like feel that you know perpetuates throughout crypto currently so yeah that's great because you know there have been some prominent investors like block tower but they have had to buy on the open market like the rest of us and it feels great to be on equal footing for once with vc funds because it's just normally not the case so i think in terms of the way they've executed even though they're an anonymous team they have definitely thought only about the users and not about you know their own selfish interests or you know trying to make sure you make money before it's released to you know retail traders they just want to create a great product which is you know not common to see in crypto um and then you know thoughts from using the protocol it's it has a really clean ui i guess it's very clear what your collateral is what your entry price is your exit price your liquidation price the fees you're paying they make it very obvious to the user and you don't have to really do any kind of mental arithmetic to figure out, you know, how much money you've put in, how much, what is your liquidation price, when will you get liquidated, and how much are you paying in fees? And it, they also make it very clear that you're going long an asset, you're shorting an asset, or you're using a perpetual swap and you're taking leverage. And they also let you, I mean, they make it apparent to you how much leverage you're taking. So although, you know, trading perps is not something I recommend an average retail user do, if you were to go and trade on this platform, if you have just a basic understanding of what a perp is, you will be fine. Like they're not trying to make it confusing. They're trying to make it as easy as possible. And because it's not a centralized exchange, there's none of that KYC bullshit. You just need to connect your wallet and you're good to go. That's all you need to do, which is crazy. Right. So... I guess before we get into tokenomics, do you guys have any more comments, such questions? No, I think I'm good. Yeah, I think that you've explained it pretty well. Yeah, same. same cool. So let's get into tokenomics. So as we know, tokenomics is you know about the demand and the supply of the token. Uh, so first, before we get into demand, let's you know talk about the supply. So GMX is like the protocol's utility and governance token, as we mentioned. And it, that is the token that, you know, has a cap supply and is that is what you can go and buy on the open market if you believe in GMX as a product. So GMX has a forecasted maximum supply of 13.25 million tokens. Uh, but that 13.25 is a number that will probably never be reached because of the way they've structured it. So 6 million of that 13.25 total is, uh, is they migrated it over from the previous uh, platform that they had built on Binance Smart Chain. 
So I think that was called Gambit. It was like a similar product, but it was launched on Binance Smart Chain. So they migrated over those tokens uh, to, you know, Arbitrum as GMX. So that's 6 million of them. 2 million is paired with Ethereum on Uniswap uh, for liquidity. So if people want to go and buy and sell uh, GMX, the best place to do it would be Uniswap because it has the deepest liquidity. Uh, 2 million GMX is reserved for vesting from uh, escrow GMX uh, reports. We'll talk about that later, exactly what that means. Uh, another 2 million GMX tokens are currently completely off market. They're not even being minted and they are for a floor price fund. And we talk about that also, but essentially the floor price fund is a way to ensure that GMX always has a minimum price that it should trade. And if it goes below that minimum price, then uh, these 2 million GMX tokens can essentially be, uh, can be used to buy back uh, tokens to ensure that the price of GMX comes up to that certain minimum price that they want to. Uh, and then 1 million GMX is reserved for marketing partnerships and community developers. So that is essentially a spend for them in a way. And then the remaining 250,000 GMX tokens uh, are for the team distributed linearly over two years, which means that of you know 13 million tokens, only 250,000 are reserved for the team. So they clearly you know, are not trying to cash grab and keep a large amount for themselves. They, they, and it's also vesting over a term of two years. So they have, sorry. Sorry, sorry, sorry. I don't know what happened there. Uh, but yeah, they have uh, enough reason. We have enough reason to believe that, um, they are not trying to rug us or something like that because they have a very small portion of the amount of total tokens. So that's the supply. Uh, so, how does this work? This this floor price fund because to buy back you have to sell. So how are you like so to to use the GMX tokens to buy back other GMX tokens you still have to sell GMX tokens. You know what I mean? Uh, so let me let me think about how exactly to explain this. Um, so these floor price flow tokens have not yet been minted, which means, um, so essentially, uh, okay, we get back to that. It's kind of tough to explain it right now. Let me just think about it while I explain other things and we get back to it. Um, then we can talk about the value accrual of the token. So essentially the value accrual comes from three different things. So the first is the Ethereum or AVAX rewards that we spoke about that's paid out in you know fees, essentially. The second thing is escrow GMX, which is essentially, I guess you could call it liquidity mining, kind of like Curve and VCurve. And the third thing is multiplier points, which I would kind of say is like the boosting of rewards on Curve. Uh, so they are kind of trying to implement VTokenomics without actually implementing VTokenomics. But the way they've done it is kind of weird because escrow GMX and GMX earn exactly the same fees. So you don't need to convert your GMX into escrow, escrow GMX to earn fees. So I'm not sure exactly why they've implemented escrow GMX. And if any of our viewers, viewers understood why they've done that, please get back to us. But essentially, 
the rewards are paid out. Uh, so it's a 27% APR currently, of which 10% is paid out in Ethereum or AVAX, and the remaining 17% is paid out in escrow GMX. And escrow GMX, you have to basically lock up for one year, after which you can unlock and you know earn the fees that have been owned over the entire year, essentially. So yeah, do you, I mean, you have any questions? I'm sure you do. And even I had questions when I read about this. I wasn't sure exactly what the what the point of escrow GMX was, but yeah. You cannot go over it in the docs or anything because honestly, like just listening to you about the escrow GMX, it seems like it doesn't really make any sort of sense because it's essentially trying to ask you to lock up your tokens for more liquidity and not get any benefits in return. And yeah. So I think even in their docs, this is I'm gonna I'm gonna read word for word. Okay. So they wrote. A summary of rewards and mechanics. GMX earns ETH slash AVAX, escrow GMX, and multiplier points when staked. That makes sense. Escrow GMX owns ETH slash AVAX, escrow GMX, and multiplier points when staked. So they, they are doing exactly identical things. Either if you stake it as just normal GMX or escrow GMX, you're owning the same rewards. So I'm not this sure why. Yeah. So, okay. So think, so, so think about it, right? Like, okay. So the first transaction a user will make is to stake their GMX. So they will stake the GMX and they'll get escrowed GMX back, right? They don't get actual yeah. like GMX back. They get escrowed GMX back. Yeah. Now, like the reason that I think that um, they've done this is because when the user gets escrowed GMX back, they can't actually like redeem it for GMX in the market for up to a year. That means that any rewards that they distribute are uh, then in intentionally locked up for at least a year. That means that when the rewards are given in terms of GMX, it does not actually impact GMX price for a significant amount of time. And what do you do when you have escrowed GMX? You're not just going to hold it and wait for it to turn into, into uh, GMX, right? You're actually going to be staking it because you want to get more of it. And then you just lead, go into a cycle where you're creating more and more escrowed GMX, but that is not unlocked for about a year. And that incentivizes people to keep the GMX locked up and to keep essentially to keep like the escrow GMX staked and locked up that adds to the theoretical security of the network. I mean, I, I don't know about the last point, but at least like the other Not really security, just security in terms of price action, right? Exactly. Security in terms of price action. So I guess that, you know, if I had to, you know, just try and understand why they would do this, I would say that it's this. Uh, you know, just to try and incentivize people to stake their escrow GMX and literally just hold on to GMX for as long as possible. And I don't think it's like the worst thing in the world um, because when you, you know, come to this kind of conclusion, um, because what it does is it enables people to interact with the protocol for a larger amount of time. Although, you know, um, I, I guess the boosted rewards or extend, you know, additional rewards portion of what other V tokenomics models do um, might be something that could be explored, but I, I, I to like add incentives, but, but then again, um, by doing this method, they are ensuring that they don't have to, you know, release too much more GMX or escrow GMX into the, into the ecosystem while still ensuring that the holders uh, keep on staking their GMX, right? So I think that this might be a reason why they're doing it but again i can't confirm and again viewers if you if yeah. anyone has additional information about this would love to discuss absolutely 
so coming back to your question about the floor price fund. So, I mean, I thought about it in the meantime. And the way that they buy back is because, so GMX owns yield, right? So there's 2 million GMX set aside that is also earning yield, but is not currently on the market. So when they decide to, you know, bring that GMX onto the market, that GMX would have also earned a certain amount of yield. So they can use the yield and fees earned to buy back more GMX tokens to ensure that there's a minimum price for GMX. So the minimum price for GMX is, is, is essentially the amount of fees earned by the 2 million GMX. Uh, uh, how many GMX tokens can they essentially buy with the fees earned from 2 million GMX tokens is the minimum price of the floor price fund, if that makes sense. So the GMX tokens earns yields from where? Uh, the thirty percent of the platform fees okay. are paid out to right. GMX right? So they are part of yeah. that. Understood. And this, this, these two million GMX tokens would be governed by the rest of the GMX holders. Right. So I mean, currently, I think the minimum price of the GMX floor fund is, I think it's around zero point seven dollars. So. The token will have a minimum value for sure. I mean, you can be guaranteed of that. Uh, so that's one great thing that, you know, this floor price fund in, uh, introduces. It's essentially a way for the protocol to keep funds aside for a rainy day, essentially, right? So if it goes below this minimum price, the GMX DAO, I guess, by then will be able to activate these 2 million tokens to get the fees from these 2 million tokens to buy back other GMX tokens from, you know, people. I think that's actually, you know, like being a floor, it's similar to actually what these reserve fund type of products uh, or projects like Olympus have been doing because Olympus also has a treasury, right? Like the theoretically, yeah. the value of the Olympus token shouldn't actually go below the value of the treasury because then you have an arbitrage opportunity, right? Because mm -hmm. that token should be theoretically worth as much as um, yeah, like you, you get, you get the point. So I guess that this is that kind of trying to keep a floor of it. Um, I don't know like fully why exactly that's necessary for something like GMX, like something like a GMX token, I guess it's to, you know, maintain like a minimum floor, like stable value or something like that. But you know, if the token price drops to $0.7, um, I think that they're going to have much bigger problems than, you know, maintaining like a floor price. Yeah. I mean, the hope is the hope is that as time goes on, GMX holders accrue much more fees than they currently do. And that is quite, it's a quite possible future, right? Because currently GMX can only support an arbitrary and AVAX and a very limited number of assets. But because they are so efficient at executing trades, they can just keep integrating with more and more aggregators. And ag the way aggregators work is they will execute a trade the, in the best possible way for the user. So if someone wants to buy Bitcoin or Ethereum uh, using an aggregator and GMX is in, uh, you know, integrated with this aggregator, GMX will be the most efficient place to conduct whatever trades the aggregator needs to. And as GMX, as the aggregator uses GMX, fees automatically flow into the ecosystem and to GMX stakers, right? So what they need to do is ensure that they are earning fees from as many places as possible, which means just going and integrating with as many chains and aggregators as they possibly can to make sure they can route as much trading volume as possible through that platform, right? So I wouldn't look at it at the floor price fund as like a 
now i wouldn't look at it now i would look at it what could it be in the future assuming firstly the uh just basically the, looking at the amount of fees they are earning over time and whether that is increasing and so far the increase has been exponential so i guess a good thing to do for anyone interested is is look at the floor price funds minimum price over a period of time and not just currently what it is right because you can't you can't expect the floor price fund to be like you know two two thirds or one third of the current price that's kind of crazy that, that, that makes sense and, you know what you said about looking at it over time is a bit of an indicator of how the protocol has performed over time and how they and how the floor price fund itself has performed over time like it's not obviously a linear indicator but it's and you know it is it, it is some sort of indicator that you know it's doing well it's it's increasing in value yeah exactly and so i mean let's talk about the total market that gmx is looking at currently so currently the market for um you know uh like per perpetual futures is uh not perpetual future just futures and options currently in the world is i think around 60 trillion dollars of that crypto uh, you know futures and options are around worth around 1 1.5 trillion dollars and of that just 3% um is um conducted on dexs currently of that around i think 80% of that still is uh, in dydx so gmx currently has a very small part of a very small part of a very small part of the pie so the hope is or i guess i mean if you believe in crypto you would obviously assume that more and more trading will go on to you know crypto trading exchanges as long as you know they start integrating real world assets the way synthetics is and the second thing we would hope for is that the trading would move from centralized exchanges to decentralized exchanges uh and if this happens if it plays out the way you would want it to as a gmx holder the total addressable market goes from currently around i don't know 100 billion dollars to i don't know 10 trillion dollars right you could see a 100x increase in the market size itself for gmx so i mean i think it's very tough to predict where gmx is going to go in the future because there's so many variables because they rely on completely rely on trading fees for users to accrue value so they just need to increase the ways possible to earn fees and the way it's growing they probably can increase it a lot more than what it currently is but it would rely a lot on the team to make those integrations with aggregators get themselves on other l2s and alt l1s and just try to expand as much as possible as quickly as they can to capitalize when you know people realize the market opportunity in the future and the the gmx token it 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 only exists on on um ethereum is it no i mean it uh it's a it's a token that you can buy on all different kinds of decentralized exchanges and centralized exchanges as well right if they just hold it in their wallets you can buy it right so the but then it's it doesn't matter where the trading happens it it all accrues to the same uh pool of gmx no. buying the gmx token is not the same as trading on the platform right gmx accrues fees when you when either a user or an aggregator uses the gmx platform to conduct trades buying and selling the gmx token is completely separate from hmm. the way the token 
value. Buying and selling is just a bet. I mean, you'll buy the token if you believe that GMX as a platform will accrue more and more fees, which will make sure or, you know, make people want to buy, keep, there'll be continuous buying pressure on the token throughout time because of the fees it's earning and because the fees over time can increase and you would sell if you don't believe that. Okay, okay, got it, got it. Um, so yeah, I think that's pretty much, pretty much it. Uh, it's a GMX is like a new, uh, way of working for a DEX, I guess, because mostly, um, you know, DEXs either use an AMM model or they use a central limit order book. They don't use an Oracle pricing system. And I'm not sure why they haven't, because it's a way it makes a lot more sense than the AMM model, where there's a constant need for price discovery here. The price is already there and they're just integrating that price onto their platform from other platforms, which I don't know why no one has thought thought of before. And I mean, yeah, I get the EMM That's model is a way to provide liquidity, but this makes a lot more sense in terms of conducting large trades and ensuring that liquidity providers are not the ones who get screwed for providing liquidity. Well, Oracle's are a, is, is just another... Um, dependency, right? Then you then you have you you introduce another variable. EMMs are based yeah. on math, so it's less less um, subject to you know randomness really. Uh, but in the downside, it's the impermanent loss. Yeah, I mean, would you? I mean, you're not really. I mean, an oracle is not going to go down, right? It's Chainlink is also a decentralized protocol, so you're not relying on any centralized party here, right? So there's no centralization risk. The risk is maybe inefficient price discovery, but I feel like it's still more efficient than an EMM, right? Yeah, I mean, I definitely need to look into how oracles work. I, I, but when I say dependency, I don't mean centralization risk. I mean, just um, possible flaws or possible vulnerability, vulnerabilities on how an oracle actually performs or how it functions. Um, yeah, I guess this also allows you to, you know, provide one-sided liquidity. You don't need to, you know, as an LP, you don't need to provide liquidity in pairs like the way you need to on Uniswap. You can just provide one of the supported assets and then you mint GLP, right? So it's an easier way to provide liquidity and it also, you're not just restricted to two assets. So, I mean, I think it's a win-win for everyone. And we have, we have seen multi-sided pools before. I think Balancer was the one who pioneered it, if I'm not wrong. So... This is just a, the same thing, but instead of, you know, the constant product formula, they're using oracles. And I, for the life of me, I can't figure out why no one has done this before and why it took so long for someone to think of it. It doesn't make sense in some ways to me, but yeah, that's, that's where we are. I think, I think a, 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 like a real deep dive into how oracles work will give you an answer. I haven't done that, but I think that's where the yeah. question arises. Definitely. What about you said? Anything else to add? Can you can you hear me? Yeah, yeah, we can you hear, you. hear me. Right? Oh, you can hear me. Okay, good. Um, but yeah, I think like from the Oracle's question, right? Um, I mean, it, it is a trade-off because you are dependent on Oracles to price things and in derivative markets where even the tiniest minuscule proportion of price difference can cause, you know, high, uh, it, it can literally cause you to get um, liquidated, right? I think it's it's extremely important for an Oracle to be completely performant. 
and um, and, and the data sources that that Oracle is using to be you know very trusted. So essentially, right? Like let's say that um, you know if you're using an Oracle and an Oracle is getting its price off of a centralized exchange like Binance. I mean, like okay, you know you. Uh, like we've said before, you're as decentralized as like the least decentralized thing in your stack. In this case, if an Oracle is dependent upon Binance's price feed uh, to be able to pull data into GMX and Binance's price feed is centralized, then GMX's price feed is centralized. So that is the trade-off. But I think in derivatives markets, again, I, and it's not like I'm saying that, oh, I disagree with the trade-off that they're making because I actually agree with it. You have to have pockets of centralization because centralization does give you speed and efficiency. And there, are, and so, and, and there have to be some places in which you just, you're just going to have to end up trusting the system, right? Like you can't, um, you know, if you, if you have as many decentralized oracles as possible, that would be the best way to essentially get like an accurate price. Um, but then again, it is more critical for a decentralized exchange to be very performant um, and to, to have the exact correct prices and low slippage and the best user experience possible. And actually using oracles gives you that to a higher degree um, than using a constant product function, which can enable high slippage, as you mentioned before. So I think that, you know, if you're kind of trying to you know, break it down by, let's say there are five factors that a decentralized exchange needs to have. And then there are these two options, which is constant product function or an Oracle. If you essentially aggregate the scores across each of these functions um, for the two methods that you can use, I think an Oracle would win out, which is why I think that this is a sensible decision, but it doesn't mean that you don't recognize the trade-offs that are still there. Definitely. I mean, even more so for perps, right? Because you're taking leverage and because, you know, your liquidation prices and these margins start getting really tight, you want it to be <clears throat> as accurate and as performant as possible. And I think most users would be willing to take that trade-off of, you know, pricing from or oracles with that centralization risk in a way from, you know, like because of pricing it from centralized exchanges over, you know, having it be completely decentralized, but, you know, your trades are more inefficient and it can lead to, you know, pricing inaccuracies where you get liquidated, even though you're slightly above your price, things like that will happen exactly. in the EMM model, which wouldn't happen over here. Exactly. And, and another thing, right? Like, I think you were talking about the overall options market. Um, I think it's like really important to hammer down on the fact that in crypto, um, we're nowhere near like how options markets are in traditional finance. I mean, derivatives are, are, are the lifeblood of the financial market as we know it today. Because if you have a, if derivatives volumes are significantly above spot volumes, right? Um, I don't know if you mentioned, um, you know, what the crypto options uh, volume as a percentage spot is. Um, as of, you know, I think this was about um, a few, a few months ago at the start of the year, um, the uh, jump crypto you know they did an article around like the state of the crypto derivatives market and um crypto options volume as a percentage of spot is two percent in january where the market was actually a lot healthier than it is today so i would assume that this has gone low but again who knows um in and in u.s equity markets this number is 35 x 35 times the amount of uh, spot volume, right? So if you literally just take that as an indicator of even, you know, in the in your wildest dreams, the crypto market does not pan out as it does. The one thing that you can, 
you know be comfortable in knowing is that the derivatives market at least still definitely has a long way to grow um so i think that that's super important right um and you know i think that it's just it's just such a vast space to explore it's why we've seen so many different types of protocols come up with all these different types of vaults and topex and you know like so uh, ribbon katana so many so many um you know structured product protocols um perpetual protocols like all of those kinds of things um it, it, it's such a huge de uh, design space which actually can improve and if it's applied to traditional markets um it can improve traditional markets also significantly just the manner in which these transactions using you know tokens and the qualities of the blockchain are like you can you can have a step change in the performance of derivatives markets globally um you know so i think that it's a huge huge space that can be explored and um yeah there's there's so much that can that, that, that there's so much untapped ground still out there yeah the main problem i'd say is you know integrating real world assets and bringing them on chain that's probably going to be the biggest hurdle in terms of regulation because i mean the sec in the us for example wants to regulate every single trade you made on a stock and they probably wouldn't have the same power they have currently if you know trading started moving on chain and you know everyone was just using a wallet to trade and there's no kyc process that would that would be like anarchy for them right so yeah the market for for options and stuff on chain will increase but there are hurdles and there are reasons why it has not proliferated to the rest of you know other assets that are out there and it's only mostly crypto specific still like you know other than synthetics there's really no protocol out there that's trying to let you buy different stocks and you know options on stocks etc on chain i mean yeah like you obviously are waiting for like the big elephant in the room for everything that we talk about as a guaranteed is regulation right i mean that's what is going to impact the future of this market to the highest degree than any other external factor will um so it's it's obviously a big um consideration point with options protocols as well but you know it's it's worth i mean even with regulation i think that the amount of um you know options volume as a percentage of spot crypto volume is going to be a lot higher than 2% and it you know um and and therefore there's a lot of space to go um and you know like i just going back to that jump article i think that i can quickly if i can share my screen i'll show you where um i'll show you where um you know jump uh, has categorized all of these different types of options protocols i think that might be a bit of a useful mind map or, or you know market map for for viewers to to look towards um so say do you mind just like letting me share the screen yeah, yeah. but yeah like if you just see this graph right like if you see um the i think that yash where would you place um gmx in I, it would probably be in like a perpetual options uh de de decentralized um yeah. you know perpetual options or it would be in like perpetual futures decentralized perpetual futures now it would be i think decentralized that perpetual futures yeah and so you I can also do spot but i guess this is derivatives so in this graph it would be decentralized perps yeah exactly right um so i think that it would fall here or you know some of it might fall here as well but i think that there there are competitors in the market as you can see here um dydx perpetual protocol those ones are you know um some of the main ones i think that if you actually look at this um if you look at this uh market map right 
zero one is the only one that actually goes across perpetual decentralized options and um, perpetual decentralized futures. So I think that that would be one that would be, you know, uh, good to keep in mind, but looking at the traction that GMX has got, um, and funnily enough, this is because this graph is from January, it actually doesn't include GMX. If it, if it was done now, it would have GMX in one of the main spots because of the traction that it's been getting. Um, but, it, you know, very important to highlight again, how quickly things move in crypto as well, right? Um, some of these, like, you wouldn't have even heard of. So, um, actually, yeah, zero one and Derry. But, yeah, like, well, some of these you wouldn't have even heard of. So, um, it's, it's important to, you know, as, as, like, a bit of a benchmark as to how quickly crypto changes and how quickly, you know, these products can be developed that just gain significant market traction. Exactly. And the thing is, they did this with, you know, no funding, nothing, no no liquidity mining really uh i mean it's pretty crazy the amount of growth they've seen for something that has absolutely no external backing right it's completely bootstrapped and it just worked because it's such a good product right and, and also, i think yeah agree kind of things to come and also it actually shows you what the power of composable open source code is because i'm exactly. sure they use open source code from other protocols to build on top of it, right? Which is why their development cost might have not been as high. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's a very useful barometer um, for understanding the importance of this open source code, composable Lego blocks of like the DeFi ecosystem as you've been talking about them um, since we started this podcast and obviously amongst ourselves even before we began it. And, um, and also, you know, just how quickly crypto moves and um, how much of an actual, it's kind of like perfect competition, really, because you're, you're consistently developing products um, that are slightly better than the, pre, than the predecessors to improve upon them and therefore gain more and more usage. And this constant cycle of continuous improvement is good for the consumer. Maybe not as good for companies to establish their dominance in, um, but again, for the consumer and like for users, it's, it's, a, it's a boon. Yeah. And I also, Absolutely. Think, I also think it's it's it says a lot about the team, even though they are you know anonymous or pseudonymous. The fact that they've been able to execute in such a you know a fair launch manner um, talks about their execution ability, right? Even though you don't know them, um, I I don't think that just if you build a good product, users are going to come, right? I I mean, um, I mean people have been saying that all along, but you know you still need to have some ability. To get your product in front of the right audience for the for the network effects to kick in, and they've done that. So that I think that that speaks volumes. Yeah, I think that like obviously they've been pandering. Well, not pandering. That's the wrong word. And they've been playing for a crypto native audience, right? Like they've been the the product is geared towards a crypto native audience, and it'll and and you know it'll be interesting to see how they actually evolve the product to. Um, you know, maybe hopefully after regulation is a lot, little more embedded, um, how they, you know, pivot their product towards a non-crypto native audience, um, or maybe towards, you know, finance professionals, etc., to actually get them to use uh, these kinds of derivatives um, in, you know, their own traditional, you know, having traditional finance products as uh, options for traditional finance products or getting them to use options for uh, in a crypto native manner for many crypto products. Like it'll be very interesting to see how they pivot their method. Um, but yeah, you know, to date, they've done really well um, in, in terms of bootstrapping usage and just the general 
vibe around the protocol has been very positive just because of the fair issuance of tokens and um, lack of bootstrapping and just the execution pace and also yeah, and the economics yeah and i think this also becomes a lego on top of which other protocols can build because any protocol let's say you want to build a you know a decentralized option vault protocol uh where you're trying to use exotic strategies that you know incorporate buying selling you know different things to perfectly hedge and get the strategy you want you want you'd want to do that with the lowest possible slippage right so protocols themselves would end up using gmx to execute whatever they need to for their users and because gmx holders are making a fee from all these different protocols every time they trade protocols themselves could be incentivized to pick up stakes in gmx because they know that you know basically i'm as a protocol i'm going to going to be paying gmx a fee i i might as well hold gmx and earn that fee for myself if you if you get what i mean i mean it sounds like you're putting money from one pocket into another but still right i mean they know that so much fees is going to come and they'll also know who their competitors are yeah and then everyone will be paying those fees to gmx assuming that they are the premier destination for executing options trades yeah. then automatically you would want to pick up a stake in a in a protocol that you know is going to grow based on your industry knowledge mm-hmm. right so it could lead to something like curve where you know everyone is competing for the same curve rewards and i guess competing for liquidity this could be the same thing where everyone is competing for the same fees Mm-hmm. and try to accumulate the biggest stake possible to get a higher higher share of fees owning the owning the protocols you use is i think you know the one of the main usps of tokenization as a whole and this is like just a great use case that you just you just highlighted right because people yeah. you know, you're using that feature of owning the protocol itself to really bootstrap you know that 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 snowball effect essentially yeah and i mean the way they've done it is really good because there is a very scarce amount of gmx out there currently to buy because a lot of it is you know it's it's either vested or it's you know it's not minted yet with the floor price fund or you know there's different places so there's actually only around 8 million circulating right now out of the 13 million and most people who, who you know read about it are forecasting that the 13 million will actually never all be circulating at any given point and to add to that around 82% of the circulating supply i think currently is being staked so in terms of free float there's like nothing out there right now and if there's even a slight increase in demand the price will will skyrocket because of a majority of it is staked which and i think in- that that's actually very good um because a token should be used by the people who use the product rather than just as a method of speculation so kind yeah. of you know limiting the latter as much and you know prioritizing the former as gmx seems to have achieved up until now um is a good is a very good sign it's a very good yeah. sign it's a very good you know um north star to be aiming towards for for protocols yeah definitely there's no mercenary capital right because they're not just giving out unnecessary farming rewards to people providing yeah. liquidity and people are incentivized to stay on the platform long term because they're earning real yield right and that's very rare in crypto to see and yeah and and hopefully it's the direction that we build towards which it seems like you know we might be hopefully yes anyway guys i think that's all from me it's 
it's been a complicated topic for sure, but very interesting nonetheless. Yeah, definitely. Same. Nothing else from me as well. Um, and thanks everyone for listening in. Please don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. Subscribe to you know our newsletter as well, where we have a detailed um, article about GMX released uh, as well, assessing all of the, the aspects that we spoke about here and then some more. Um, and yeah, great episode, guys. Thanks so much for joining in. Um, thanks, Yash, for doing the research and everything. And yeah, see you guys next time. Cheers. See you guys. Have a good one. Thank <music> you.